the legal cannabis industry has unlocked generational wealth opportunities across the country. But the industry's regulatory complexities, constant state of change, and speed of evolution drive confusion for entrepreneurs and investors alike. On this podcast, we'll interview the industry leaders who are shaping the future of the legal cannabis industry to help our listeners understand these idiosyncrasies. This is Cannabis Unlocked, hosted by Key Investment Partners. So good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Unlocking Cannabis podcast with Key Investment Partners. I'll be your host today, Jordan Euclid, one of the founding partners of Key Investment Partners. Today, we've got a very uh, special uh, discussion where we're going to be having a roundtable discussion with folks from different parts of specialty finance within the cannabis industry. So I'm very excited to be joined today by David Kivitz of XS Financial, an equipment finance lender to the industry. Kyle Schenfeld of Rainbow Realty Group on the commercial real estate side, and Ting Hu of Navis Capital on the uh, working capital finance side. So with that, we'd love to pass it over to David if you want to give a little bit of uh, your background and career history and you know how you got involved in the cannabis industry, and then we can go around the room and, and everyone else can give their introductions as well. Sure. Uh, Jordan, thanks for having us on and, and to the whole key team. Excited to be here today with strong industry peers. Uh, my background is, is in structured finance uh, back on the East Coast. Um, did that on the institutional side for the better part of five or six years before <clears throat> moving into private equity um, and a family office in New York. And when the housing market crashed, uh, moved out to California and started acquiring distressed master plan housing communities that we put back into production and development and ultimately built out uh, about 300 home sites. Um, in 2017, looking for kind of the next capital dislocation uh, and, and large opportunity, we kept coming across what looked like pretty interesting cannabis deals. And you know, obviously knowing how big we thought the illicit market was, seeing the momentum towards the, the, the legal market, we felt that this was uh, an industry that you know, we could do very well in and there was gonna be a lot of opportunity. And so you know, formed a capital structure, uh, started investing in the space and our biggest uh, portfolio investment ended up becoming XS Financial, uh, which provides uh, CapEx and equipment finance to the industry at scale and really to some of the, the largest MSOs and largest customers in the space. So um, excited about the opportunity, where we think we can take it, and um, what's ahead. Great. Now, Kyle, do you want to give your background as well? Yeah, happy to. And Jordan, thanks again um, to your whole team. Excited to be here. And amongst strong peers. David and I have worked together or, or have tried to work together in the past for sure. And it's nice to meet you and Ting as well. So this is great. Um, I was a real estate attorney in my former life. Uh, I worked at a law firm in Manhattan called Herrick Feinstein for about three and a half years. Um, and then my, my grandfather, uh, who had a real estate company called Gould Investors, asked me to retire from the legal profession to come make an honest living. Um, so I came and worked for my family uh, who has a real estate company about five years ago, we had been invested in cannabis about 10 years ago. So, you know, we were one of the original 10 license holders in New Jersey with a facility called Cranberry, uh, called Breakwater in Cranberry, New Jersey. And, you know, we structured that transaction as a leasehold interest. We weren't actually an equity partner. Um, but I got, you know, when I came over to work for the family, I got curious about it, started going to cannabis conferences. You know, we started doing 
kind of small investments that were non-real estate, right? We have like a 60 year real estate history. So that's really what we've always done um, with, you know, light, light cannabis experience. But we started seeing a lot of interesting opportunities in sort of late 2017, early 2018, did a bunch of equity investing on the family's balance sheet. And then, you know, these were, you know, three times your money, five times your money, riskier deals than we were accustomed to from the real estate world. But we started seeing opportunities in cannabis that were, you know, sell these facts on pretty normal retail and industrial real estate, um, but at, you know, 15 type yields at the time. Um, and so we bought a few of those deals on our own balance sheet. You know, we were much more enthusiastic about that because again, it, from our perspective, it was more secure. You know, we had a downside in, in a non-cannabis world that we could understand. Um, we bought a bunch of those deals on our balance sheet. We went and raised a, a fund from friends and family. Um, as of last Friday, we actually just finished out the equity in that fund. So we're raising another one now. Um, you know, I, I, I love the industry. It's a lot of fun. It's definitely a small industry. There's a lot of camaraderie. There's a lot of, you know, you, you partner with your competitors more than ever in this industry. Yeah. So it's fun and I, and I really enjoy it. Um, I'm happy to be here. So, so thank you. That's great. Thanks, Kyle. And Ting, now to you. Sure. Jordan, thanks for uh, having me here. And David and Kyle, great to, great to meet. Um, you know, I think for, for myself, I, I came really more from a traditional corporate background as well. Um, worked in investment banking at Centerview Partners in New York uh, and then transitioned into tech-focused private equity investments uh, at the Carlisle Group in, in DC. Um, you know, during that time, really started digging my toes in, talking to classmates who, um, you know, went from my undergrad to uh, McKinsey, dropped out, started their own cannabis ventures and uh, really saw um, this, 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 I think, growing opportunity that I was a little hesitant to, to jump fully into, um, but made a seed investment. And then consequently over the past years really saw the industry take off. Um, coming out of business school after getting my MBA at Wharton, I uh, really saw a unique opportunity at graduating in the midst of COVID to uh, jump into an industry that has evolved so drastically over the past few years. Um, and you know, I think uh, just as I was evaluating the, the industry, saw uh, what my friends at Nabis were doing and, and really want to be a part of that, that growth story. Um, you know, Nabis uh, historically has just been a very much a tech-focused, young, upstart tech-based um, distributor of cannabis products uh, from a B2B standpoint. And so for us, financing was really not the uh, core product of the, the company. Financing is really, uh, from our standpoint, a way to assist customers and help them continue to accelerate their growth on, on the Nabis distribution platform. Um, I think one of the unique uh, components of our business model at NABS is that we are operating on a consignment basis and so don't take title of product. Uh, and so I think from a customer standpoint, uh, what that means is that there, there is that you know, gap where um, they're waiting for retailers to pay them. And obviously we handle that part of the, the service, but there's still the uncertainty around the timing of those cash flows uh, as well as the risk associated. Uh, and so we thought it would be a great opportunity to step in uh, and, and really provide that additional support that a lot of customers were, were voicing as, you know, key areas of, of uh, investment that they needed to, to really further accelerate their growth. Fantastic. Thanks, Ting. And to give my background as well, uh, I also come from a traditional finance background. So started my career with GE Capital, spent most of that time um, on the leverage finance side, providing debt to private equity sponsors, conducting leverage buyouts then made the move to uh, the private equity firm partners group where I was uh, working on the equity side of leverage buyouts, but working in much more traditional, uh, mature, stable industries. That firm back in 2016 decided to open up a new North American headquarters in Denver. 
which is what brought myself and my two eventual partners at Key uh, to the city. Naturally, living in Colorado, we saw the massive growth of the cannabis industry for several years. And then for a number of reasons, which I'm sure we'll dig into further in this discussion, saw that um, capital financing in cannabis was very highly capital constrained. And so it was with that thesis in mind that we decided to break off from that firm and form Key Investment Partners, which is a venture capital focused uh, fund financing the cannabis space. And so really excited to not just be hosting this panel, but be able to also you know, participate as venture capital is obviously another part of specialty finance within the industry. And so I would now love to kind of take a little bit of a step back and, and talk from like more of a macro perspective of, you know, I think for some of our listeners that may not be super familiar with exactly how each of our asset classes work, just to kind of take a high level uh, step back and explain some things. So for venture capital, for example, right, the way it, it traditionally works with closed end fund structures, which is um, Key's model is you'll get committed capital, which is say you'll, you'll have your limited partners will commit, you know, X dollars to your fund. You'll have, you'll have a fundraising process and then ultimately have a final close of that fund and then have an investment period, call it two to three years to invest that capital on their behalf in companies across the cannabis ecosystem, right? And so the benefits for our limited partners naturally are number one, they don't necessarily, a lot of them see the opportunity in cannabis, but just don't have the industry specific domain expertise to know where within cannabis they want to invest the, that money. And so what we've seen with a lot of early angel investors who you know, picked one specific company in cannabis, they got burned just because they didn't have the time or resources to really dedicate to fully understanding that market. Additionally, if an investor say wants to put a million dollars to work in the cannabis industry, well, if they're just investing in a, direct, in a deal directly, then you're having 100% concentration and exposure to that specific asset. Whereas with a fund, you're able to invest that same dollar amount, but get a diversified exposure to a whole number of portfolio companies with the thesis being that, you know, you should theoretically have companies that very much outperform. And while there will likely be some companies that either underperform or potentially even go bankrupt, that your winners more than offset those losers. So you, you naturally get those diversification benefits. Um, so with that, uh, why don't we go back in, in reverse order and Ting, if you want to give a little bit of detail on exactly, you know, what, what working capital financing means and, and that kind of thing. Sure. So for us, you know, when we crafted the, the initial product that we wanted to offer our customers, it was really focused on uh, making it as simple as possible for them to understand uh, and, and as easy as possible from a you know, process standpoint. And so uh, our product is really non-recourse um, factoring. So true sales of accounts receivables from those brands where uh, they've made a sale to a retailer uh, and you know, want to just accelerate the, the funds back, back to themselves so that they can uh, recycle that into additional cultivation, additional equipment, uh, maybe, you know, through, through David. But um, as we think about, you know, what that meant for us, uh, it was really, you know, creating a simple factoring rate as well as advanced rate. Uh, and so charging um, anywhere between two and a half, three percent from that 30 invoices uh, on a flat basis, as well as, you know, providing the advance of 75% um, to provide the peace of mind that customers need. So for us, when we finance this, um, you know, for us, it's really been just a small piece of, uh, of our business. And so only a, uh, really a commentary note that we've been using to drive the debt, debt side of things. And, and obviously, you know, keeping uh, in mind the, the spread between our cost of capital as well as what, you know, is being charged to customers. Um, you know, so I think you know, right now we're thinking about how that continues to scale. Obviously, um, the, the credit model that we have doesn't really work once you scale beyond uh, $500,000 million in, in monthly volumes. Um, but you know, as we've talked to other creditors, you know, we think that there's a uh, real 
real demand for uh, others to get into the space and, and really leverage our platform and ability to aggregate volumes uh, to continue you know, providing a uh, what ultimately has seemed to be a uh, very safe uh, credit investment for, for others. So to date, you know, after factoring, uh, I want to say over 4 million of um, GMV or gross merchandise value on a wholesale basis, we've only really had one write-off on an uh, invoice. And so I think that speaks to, you know, one, the growing professionalism of the industry as a whole, and then also just the efficiency of our internal collections team that goes out and, um, you know, drives the, the recycling of the, the capital. Great. Mikhail, over to you. Yeah, so, um, I mean, you know, I just consider ourselves really, you know, a, a, a financing means for, for cannabis operators, right? Like the whole premise of, I think, all of our industries is kind of the fact that, you know, cannabis companies are pretty restrained from traditional means of financing. So, you know, I, I have two products in my fund. We do sale leasebacks, uh, which is just I'll purchase an existing, you know, dispensary or an industrial grow facility from a cannabis company and lease it back to them. You know, that's kind of our max proceeds uh, option. And then we also have a, a, mor a mortgage or a lending platform. Um, and so we'll do, you know, I'll take a first mortgage on, on real estate. You know, the operator has to actually own that real estate. But, you know, a lot of the times, a cat, you know, a company sort of, ha you know, is in a building for a number of years and they put a lot of money into it and they have an option. And so, but they want to own the building themselves. And so, you know, maybe I'll give them 70% of the money they need to actually buy buy that building, right? Like, you know, sometimes they'll they'll use my capital and go buy the next building, right? And generally speaking, I'm not overly concerned with what the capital is used for. Frankly, it, it's really just am I collateralized on the real estate itself? Um, and so, I mean, look, we we get intimately involved with the cannabis companies, right? Like, it's such a small industry. We connect borrowers, you know, who are who are retailers with other borrowers who are, you know, wholesalers and you know, I think we can be helpful to the cannabis companies in a number of ways, but the bottom line is that we're really just a source of capital where, you know, others are traditionally unavailable um, and we're using the real estate as security. Great. Thanks. And David, how about you? Yeah, you know, a lot of what, what the group has said, you know, are, are sentiments that I'll echo, which are, you know, we, we are focused on a certain tier of customer. So, you know, I think similar to some of the other products, there's, there's a massive need. Um, the demand is not being addressed through, you know, traditional channels um, that are, you know, available in other industries. And so what's kind of interesting about what we all do is what we're doing isn't necessarily new, right? It's not unique, um, but it's new and unique for our industry. And so, so you know, building capital structure that is in place to service this industry is by and large what all of us are doing to approach it, you know, of course, with different products. Now at Excess, our focus is, you know, what we deem to be the, the, the second largest kind of heavy infrastructure need of the industry. So next to real estate, um, which is a natural place where a lot of investors have started um, because it's an asset class that people, people tend to want to understand and can understand better, just given that it's a primary food group, we have focused on CapEx and equipment. And so, you know, what is, what is happening across, you know, our customer base, which is largely multi-state operators, um, companies that are doing, you know, 
a minimum of probably 30 million a year in trailing 12 month revenue. Um, we're looking for profitable companies and or companies that are soon to be profitable and have direct line of sight. We're looking for companies that kind of remove the execution risk aspect of their business. And I'm sure we can all have a nice chuckle about what we've seen over the last couple of years in terms of what we mean by that. Um, but, you know, companies that understand how to allocate their own capital and how to grow efficiently. And I think we, when I say we, I mean all of us here, um, are actually helping them do that by providing some type of financing that is either, you know, dilutive in your way, but you know, obviously a more permanent source of capital in our way, something that is that is not impacting the cap table, but you know, giving them something that they can grow with and you know, hopefully through an asset that they are going to yield more than they're paying us. Um, it's a good structure. And you know, so we have gotten very expertise and knowledgeable on what types of CapEx and equipment do our customers need, um, how are they using it, and what we're seeing is you know, a broad-based standardization across markets. So you know, there's a lot of groups that are providing financing to one operator in one state and a kind of disparate uh, you know, operator in another state. Um, we are funding multiple facilities for customers because our customers tend to be in multiple states. Mm -hmm. So you know, what we've seen is one piece of technology is being rolled out in Colorado, for example, once they have determined and confirmed that that piece of, of technology and equipment is what they want to work with. Now they need eight more and it's going to, you know, Pennsylvania and Massachusetts and Florida and California and, and whatever other States, you know, they're, they're looking to build into. And so, you know, listen, very similarly to how real estate needs are going to evolve as the regulatory uh, regime changes, the same is going to be said for CapEx and equipment. And so today, you know, we are, seeing as a state rolls out, it's a newer state, maybe retail's not fully built out, maybe distribution's not fully built out. You know, there might be one level of, of CapEx and equipment that is required for us to finance. As that state matures, the market gets bigger, they have more distribution channels to sell product, it might be something bigger or more automated or, you know, carry a heavier price tag so that they, they can meet the demand. And then, you know, there's going to be an era in the future where the state by state dynamic of our industry, we can all throw out a guess as to when that, that may fall. But at some point, you're likely to see regional facilities or nationwide facilities. Um, and so we will be providing financing for a, the next level, the next generation of what it is that, that the industry matures into. But, you know, I think one thing that we always say about our product and our business, and I think, you know, probably is the same that, that the other guys on here will, will, will echo, is we're addressing an industry today because we think the industry is growing significantly, you know, can generate interesting returns to our shareholders and investors and on our own capital, mm -hmm. but the industry is going to mature and evolve. And at least at XS, we're not building our platform for just today. We intend to evolve and mature with the industry, mm -hmm. whether that means cost of capital, whether it means the products we offer, whether it means you know, just thinking about the types of things that we're financing differently. We've already seen an evolution since we started. And I think, you know, we'll continue to see that moving ahead and it may even impact the types of customers that we're trying to finance. So, you know, we're, we're obviously keeping an open mind about that, but 
you know, there's a very big difference between what you read in the news, which we can all appreciate this, and, you know, immediate exuberance surrounding what's happening around cannabis and what yeah. we see on the ground, which is this industry is moving and it's moving quickly, but it's not moving at the speed that maybe headlines would lead you to right. believe. Right. And so you know, right. we've got time. The industry is still fairly nascent and, you know, it's going to take a while for this to ever look like alcohol or other CPG style businesses. So I, I, I still think we're, we're in the very early stages of a nine inning baseball game. Totally. You know, David, it's funny. We like to joke internally that the industry is simultaneously moving at the speed of light and at the snail's pace, right? And you know, we've frankly seen a lot of uh, investors get burned by just being too early, right? And, and being in a sector where certainly there could be huge upside longer term, but today it's like, okay, how do we literally get product on the shelves, right? So it's, you know, straddling those two kind of uh, different wavelengths can be a little tricky at times, but, you know, it's, it's part of the excitement of being in the industry. Um, and David, you also mentioned, you know, targeting interesting returns for your investors. And that, you know, gets, I think is, is a great segue into the next conversation of, you know, we'd love to talk about the investments that we're all making, right? And the, the asset side of our balance sheet, in the sense of, you know, what are the returns that we're thinking about for our investments? And how does that compare to what those returns would look like, say, in a non-cannabis investment, but of the same asset class, right? So as we think about, you know, venture capital and cannabis or, or you know, traditional private equity, with traditional private equity, upper middle market funds, you know, you're typically buying very mature, stable businesses, you know, probably growing between five to 15% per year, you're able, they're, they're most likely already profitable. So you're able to put pretty significant leverage on those businesses. And I'd say most traditional private equity funds will, I'd say, target gross returns in their base case of call it two and a half times their money, maybe 20% gross IRR. You know, within cannabis, I'd say that that premium is, is certainly much higher, right? Because number one, because the industry is so nascent and the regulations change so rapidly that that naturally, you know, adds an additional element of, uh, of risk to the industry, right? And so, you know, we're, we're not... Uh, like a, a seed stage or, or pure venture type uh, firm in the sense that, you know, a lot of those very early stage funds will look to have a couple of investments that 100 plus X their returns, many that go to zero and a few that, you know, return costs or maybe do slightly above that. We're, we're really more focused on later stage investments or growth equity type returns. So what we're typically looking for, I'd say, is, you know, returns in the five to 10 X range for our base to home run case and that have relatively low likelihood of complete loss of principal. And as we think about, you know, the full fund size, so we're really targeting, you know, gross to net returns of three to four X. Um, and so there is certainly a very significant cannabis premium because, you know, as, as I mentioned, it's a very nascent industry today. And so we'd love to go around the horn and, and get everyone else's thoughts on, you know, how their investment returns compared to traditional asset classes. So Kyle, why don't we start with you on the real estate side? Yeah. Um... It's tough for me to talk after after you're, you're, you guys can make the returns that you can make. But the truth is that, look, I my fund is 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 the is a lower cost provider. You know, again, like I'm I'm really focused sort of on a non-cannabis LTV, and so the the way I win those sort of deals is by being you know one of the I think one of the lower or the lowest cost providers that I know of, like in the space, right? So I don't know when I first got into this, into this industry, it was kind of like 2018, and it was. I could do 15 cap deals all day. Now it's like, you know, I'm putting money out like in the low, low to mid double digits, right? Like with, with the stronger operators, like, you know, I've done deals around 11%. Um, as that relates to 
kind of real estate, you know, I, I think, I think it's twice that of normal real estate, right? Like you, you know, you're buying a building in San Francisco. Well, I don't know. San Fran's not a great example because things have changed there, but if you're buying a building in, in, in a strong area, right? Like it's going to be below a six cap almost always. Um, you know, we're making comfortable kind of 12 cap returns here and those are unlevered. Um, and you know, they, they throw off yields. So, you know, simply, simply put, I'd say our returns are kind of twice that of, of typical real estate in terms of yield, but that's probably the lowest you're going to hear on this panel um, because we're, we're just lower on proceeds. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. David, how about from your end? Yeah. So, you know, if you use that general mantra, right, you compared it to traditional private equity and, and Kyle's comparing to traditional, you know, real estate type returns. Um, we view what we're getting as secured returns that look like traditional private equity, but for being a secured lender, right? Against collateral that, while being used by cannabis companies, really isn't specifically produced for cannabis at all, right? So we finance vehicles and um, testing equipment and, and packaging equipment, filling equipment, and all these kinds of things. Most of what we're financing, unlike, you know, specifically what Ting's doing with, you know, inventory or um, Kyle's doing with cannabis focused properties, um, you know, we're really focused on collateral that, that is being used by cannabis businesses, but isn't necessarily specifically created for cannabis businesses. So in a downside scenario, we have the ability to redeploy that equipment into really any industry, which we think is a nice advantage for the collateral. But in, in terms of returns themselves, we're targeting high teens, unlevered. Um, we do have some leverage uh, in our portfolio. So, you know, on a leverage basis, we're really looking to be in the high 20s. But to be in the high 20s with security and guarantees from, you know, top 10, top 15 MSOs in the country, we think that our risk adjusted returns are compelling. Um, and much like everybody on this panel, we're leaning into it as strongly as we can. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely that's great and taking how do you think about your returns relative to traditional working capital finance companies sure i mean on the factoring side of things uh as, as i mentioned we, we charge two and a half to three percent for net 30 but it's also on a flat basis and then our advance rates are 75 to 80 percent as we've looked at traditional non-cannabis industries uh we've seen you know general business factoring rates as low as one percent from that 30 and and 85 percent uh, plus advance rates um, certainly, there's there's definitely a uh, cannabis premium associated with what we're doing, um, and and I think um, part of that is driven by the cost of capital that that we're bearing as well. Uh, but certainly, there's an, a greater element of risk when you're dealing with over a thousand retailers uh, just in the state of California, of whom you know many of them are not part of large retailer groups, but are rather just small uh, you know small medium businesses and and you know proprietorships um, who oftentimes are paying the majority of their payments in cash. And so I think the cash-based nature and complexity of running a cannabis business has created a large tax on uh, everyone in the supply chain. Um, you know, our, our hope is that over time, that will obviously continue to, to decrease. Uh, for us, I think one of the things that you know, de-risks that uh, quite a bit is that we've also cr created and collected this uh, really a unique data set of retailer transaction and payment behavior uh, over hundreds of million dollars of wholesale transactions, which uh, allow us to underwrite retailers where there may be, uh, you know, limited credit information from any other sort of information source. 
Uh, and so that, I think, proprietary angle is what is really driving our ability to feel comfortable doing this. Um, you know, and, and ultimately, I think uh, what I want to come back to is that, you know, our primary goal here is to really accelerate the growth of our brand and our core business. And so um, while I think the net spread and, and the returns we're generating here, um, when you consider what, you know, two and a half percent, three percent means uh, on when you analyze in that 30 number, um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we think that number will continue to compress as we get better rates and the industry matures. That's great. Thanks, Ting. And so just kind of diving further into the asset side of the equation, would love to hear how everyone goes about sourcing great investment opportunities. So Ting, why don't I pass it back to you and would love to get your thoughts on that front. Sure. You know, I, I think with our current platform, what we've created, um, just given that we're very much tech focused, is this fully built out platform that allows um, you know, brands, manufacturers to uh, create, to have a one-stop shop to uh, set up uh, deliveries to any retailer in the state of California. Uh, and so, you know, for us, because we're ingesting that information already, it's a streamlined platform to then directly feed it into the factoring platform where, you know, any brand that works with us uh, really has the ability to go in and decide that they want to get paid early for any uh, invoice that we've delivered. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now it's really constrained around the internal right, the internal network of all the customers that we have, uh, as well as all the retailers that we deliver to and collect information on. Um, but, you know, over the next six months, 12 months, uh, as we continue to build out the product features and the platform, we certainly want to expand that ecosystem to include uh, third-party brands that, that we don't currently work with that still deliver into the same retailers just because, you know, we're obviously collecting that data set and, and I think we can apply it in a very similar way. So really excited to see the growth of this this platform and then the scale of our volume over time. But you know, we're I think we're still at the very early stages and, and certainly you know uh, earlier stage of maturity compared to either David or Kyle. Sure, sure, that makes sense. And David, on your side, yeah, we've we've done things and and fortunately in this industry, you know, we're not spending very much money on marketing and and lead generation. Um, obviously given the capital constraint element of the space, those who have it and are serving the market um, by default, it's easier to attract, you know, assuming you're, you're reasonably priced and, and know what you're doing, um, you know, should be able to get deals done relatively easily by hanging out your shingle and, and proving out a little track record. And so, you know, the, what we've done is, is really targeted some of the larger customers, which has acted as a brand awareness campaign for our business because it's helped put ups on the map by virtue of who we're financing. And so, you know, those are aspirational companies for a lot of the SSOs or smaller MSOs. And so they look to those, but um, we do targeted state by state list building um, using various sources of publicly available data to determine scale and size of who's in those markets. So that could be using PitchBook, that could be using LinkedIn to see number of employees Right? There, are, there are data points out there that we use and combine that all together give us target lists to say, these are criteria that even though you can't tell what somebody's revenue might be, you can gauge that they might have a decent sized business and then kind of marry that with some direct targeting um, that we do. And so you know, for us, we're looking for the finance department, the CFO, uh, maybe somebody in corporate development um, at those businesses who's likely making that type of cost of capital and financing decision, or, or at least has the both expertise and ability to bring that, you know, topic of conversation up internally. 
So that's how we think about who we need to be speaking with, not just anyone at the business. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and one of the other things I'll say, and I'm sure everybody would agree with this is, it is a small industry. And so, you know, the other way that we, we source deals that is just practical reality is relationships. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Kyle said earlier, we've tried working together. I mean, we've had a bunch of different calls to say, we're targeting a similar customer profile. Sure, sure. Maybe there's somebody you work with that it's not just a question of passing along a lead. It's more than likely Ting's customers and Kyle's customers need my product and vice mm -hmm. versa. So you're actually adding value by going to them and saying, hey, I know another funding source that's reputable and has a good product. And I think you'd enjoy working with, you should speak to them. And then it creates this dynamic where the finance groups are talking much like we are on this panel. So, you know, for us, it's relationships. It's, it's also professional services, you know, the bankers, the lawyers, the accountants, everybody's kind of using the same, you know, however many number of firms and people. And so there's a lot of overlap in that regard. And, you know, one thing that I'm sure everybody can appreciate, we spend a lot of time thinking about reputation and putting the customer first. And so by doing that, and not getting into specifics of how, but just by doing that, um, that tends to permeate a small industry and presents an opportunity for other groups to reference check and get a sense for who you are because everybody's two phone calls away in terms of you know the ability to really understand who people are in this space. And everyone has seen you know some maturity of the working professionals, whether it's financiers, whether it's the companies themselves, professional services. I mean, everybody's trying to elevate with those people around the industry who are, you know, quality. And right, so right. we've spent a lot of time on that to make sure that, you know, people who come to us, A, understand what our product is and B, you know, that we're not going to waste each other's time because we want to know we're selling an educated customer. We're not looking to, to pull the wool, you know, get anything by anybody. The companies we deal with, they know the capital markets, they know them well. And so we need to come to them with a product, with a service, with an execution style that marries with how they do business. And so mm -hmm. I think that's, that's how we think about that. That makes total sense. Kyle, I'd be curious to get your thoughts here as well. Yeah, um, I, I, look, I, think Dave, I think David said it nicely, but the thing that resonates most with me is the fact that it's a very tight industry, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, think, I think the way we've been able to generate more deal flow as well is by doing what we say we're going to do and actually having money, right? Like, I can't tell you how many deals have come back to me kind of like the 10th or 11th hour because a borrower I was talking to found, found a local bank that was going to do it at 8%. And, you know, next, you know, the business development guy was all in. And the next thing you know, it, it gets to compliance and I'm getting a phone call when, when saying, Hey, can you close this in seven days? And I'm like, no, I, I need 30, you know? Um, and then we push it out and we negotiate, but yeah, like, again, the, what, what we've done well is, is, you know, we've actually put out capital and, and we've been kind of people of our word. Um, you know, we refer business to and from our counterparties as well. We, we've done some, as of late, we've actually done some senior junior pieces. I, I took a senior with some friends and partners and other deals. We took a junior piece because they're looking for more of a yield. Um, and that was kind of a creative way we worked together. But, um, you know, we, we like, 
we have a we have a network of probably seven to ten brokers slash investment banker, uh, you know, whatever you want to call these people. Um, and they're they're really good, right? Like they have relationships with the companies. They do a lot of the work. Is the truth of the matter? Um, we spend much more time, you know, sifting through and turning away deals than we do looking for deals, right? Again, I think the truth of the matter, and Ting will realize this soon enough, is that. You know, you, you, you do what you say you're going to do and you actually have money for a period of time and the deals just come, right? Like, I right. think if, if we had a lull where suddenly we ran out of capital and, and didn't do deals for several months, I think that would be the biggest, you know, risk to what is otherwise, you know, a pipeline that, that seems to keep growing. Um, you know, the capital is not, not there yet. The institutional capital is not there yet. And so more opportunities keep coming online and the capital is still not there. And so, Yes, you know, myself and contemporaries, we're starting to raise more capital, but I, I don't think it puts a dent in, in what's actually needed. And so, right. you know, un, unlike a, unlike the typical, you know, there's it's still slightly competitive, but unlike the typical real estate world where you're bidding against 10 other people for a good deal, it's like, you know, it's it's more like I've seen the same deal come around five times and suddenly, suddenly now the guy's willing to take, you know, 50% less money than he originally wanted and, and we have a deal. Um, so more, more than, more than most industries, it's, it's reputation based. And again, like just having money and closing deals is how you build a reputation. You know, there are guys who have built a reputation for kind of being super aggressive and, you know, the, those, it, it permeates pretty quickly in a small world. You build a reputation for being, you know, a, a client focused guy or someone who charges a reasonable rate or someone who actually closes on time and actually has capital you're going to have a lot of deal flow, you know, for the foreseeable future. Totally. You'll have a lot of deal flow. And, you know, Kyle, you, you mentioned several times there, the importance of actually having capital. And we'd love to dive a little bit deeper uh, uh, on that as we move into the liability <laughs> side of the balance sheet. But just to, just to kind of close the loop on the discussion of sourcing, as we think about, you know, sourcing opportunities and not to beat a dead horse, but I think, again, yes, relationships are everything, right? Your reputation in this industry is everything and where we've gotten the best deal flow has been from the great experts such as the three of the folks on this panel referring us to folks who are raising capital and as we think about venture capital financing right we're investing in the equity side of the cap structure right so we're lowest in terms of collateral right we have the longest time horizon so making sure that we're backing just the absolute top-notch management teams that we can you know believe we have a great partnership for call it at least four to five years in most cases you know up to 10 years if things take longer to um, build out than, than we expected. And so, you know, having a great reputation ourselves and making sure that we're partnering with management teams that have great reputations in the industry is, is hypercritical. Um, I think, you know, outside of that, from our standpoint, you know, publishing thought content like this podcast right here has been really valuable for us in terms of generating deal flow and, and, and really separating ourselves from the pack of the folks that are investing in the industry today to say, hey, look, we're, we're really... We want to be strategic. We want to be very knowledgeable partners to the companies that we're investing into. We're not just, you know, a, a check that, you know, then you, you never hear from again and provides no actual strategic value in terms of helping you to get more, more deal flow down the road. Um, and so, you know, with that, we'd love to now flip over to the liability side of the equation, which I suspect, I know it's certainly the case for us. I would suspect it's probably the case for everyone on here that this is really where the, uh, the difficulties come in in terms of finance for for cannabis, right? And I always like to talk about the double-edged sword of the capital markets landscape within cannabis, right? Because, you know, once you have the capital to invest and provide loans or, you know, VC investments or whatever it may be, 
you're able to get into these deals at much more attractive terms and valuations than you would in traditional industries where capital is abundant and, and you're really just competing on price. But on the flip side, right, your, your pool of capital is much more restrictive than it would be in, in traditional industries. And so that's where I'd really like to focus this part of the conversation. And so as I think about from our standpoint, you know, in, in traditional closed-ended venture capital and private equity funds, your majority of your limited partner base will come from what are called institutional limited partners, right? And so this can be anything from corporate, corporate pension plans, public pension plans, endowments, foundations, um, you know, hedge funds, et cetera, et cetera. You know, in cannabis today, almost none of those folks will put money behind a cannabis fund. And that's due to a, a host of reasons, right? Because it's because of the perceived risk, because it's still federally illegal, because of the fact that federally insured banks are just touchy about you know cannabis at all. Uh, a lot of a lot of groups have uh, what are called vice clause restrictions, which say they can't put any money behind any what are called quote unquote sin related industries. So tobacco, alcohol, gambling, all being included in that sector. And so as we think about our potential investors, we're really today limited predominantly to family offices and high net worth individuals. So where you would typically see, I'd say in a, in a closed end fund structure where your capital comes from a very consolidated base of very large, in, in, or sorry, very large institutions and cannabis, that dynamic is very different where there's typically a much longer tail of high net worth individuals and family offices that are putting capital behind the, the, um, the fund. And as we think about, you know, the, their cost of capital, right? You know, again, in, in traditional private equity, the benchmark has, is historically something like the S&P 500 return plus 500. Those are really the, the benchmark that you're measured against. Um, and that plus 500 aspect is, is typically predominantly driven by what we call an illiquidity premium in the sense that when you commit capital to a closed end fund, your capital is locked up for that fund's life. Versus if you're just investing in a public equity, you can buy and sell that whenever you so choose. Um, now, obviously, again, in cannabis, I'd say that that premium has probably another 500 bits of, of additional premium just because of what we touched on earlier in terms of the, the nascency of the industry, the fast changing pace of regulations and that kind of thing. So that's kind of how we think about the liability side of the equation. So, um, David, we'd love to get your thoughts on, on the financing side as well for you guys. Yeah, timing's good. Um, we announced this morning that we increased our bank line. Um, so that's probably where I would start, which is, but the caveat to that is it's a state chartered bank. Um, they have, you know, borrower limits that we're going to hit. So even though they love the business, they're in the business, right? Most banks are in equipment finance or real estate lending or, or working capital type lending. And so What's interesting about what, what we do, a little bit different than, than obviously what you're doing on the venture capital equity side is our businesses are historically financed by banks um, and B, they're typically in our business. So, you know, they lend against property, they lend, a lot of them have equipment financing divisions and, and they'll even securitize or, or syndicate deals from other, you know, equipment financiers. So, you know, to look kind of top to bottom for us, we have a, a senior line from an FDIC member bank, but state chartered. Um, and so that'll only take us so far. Um, we are in the process of wrapping up something on the private credit side to have a, a large line that we can draw on to, to fund deals as we need. And, you know, similar to how we view the space as being an enhanced yield there, anybody who's lending to us is, is likely thinking about it the same way. So they're getting a premium for financing us, 
and we're getting a premium for financing cannabis. And so, you know, that is, is why that would be attractive for them. And obviously there has to be enough spread in there for, for us, to make, us to make enough net interest margin for it to be interesting. Um, and so, you know, we, we, that is typically how we've done it. And then of course with equity, um, you know, if you look at somebody like Innovative Industrial Properties, you know, on the real estate side, you know, they have successfully built a sizable portfolio, largely raising equity, or at least up until recently, and back levering. And so I think, you know, it for us as a public company, um, you know, we're, we're sensitive to, to equity financing. Um, and some of that can be determined, you know, dependent on where we're trading and, and, and how our stock is performing to make that decision. And ultimately, whether or not borrowing, raising equity, are, are the right decision is really just based on how we view the cost of capital at that time. But, you know, I think one thing that we probably are all doing is there's always this balancing act of committing to deploy capital, raising capital, and finding that sweet spot, you know, between what you're paying for your capital, what you're deploying capital for, and always making sure that you are able to fund your commitments. And you know, that, is, that is generally the kind of the hot step that we're all doing to a certain extent. And so, um, and frankly, even on the side, I'm sure, because you guys are looking at a lot of deals that, you know, I'm sure you'd like to fund. And I think it goes the same, whether it's debt equity or otherwise. So um, that's how we think about it. It's a combination of all of the above. Great. Thanks, David. And Ting, how about you and the NABIS team? How do you think about the liability side of the equation? Sure. So, you know, Jordan, as you know, NABIS as a whole is a venture-backed company. Uh, and, and so we have this complexity around, uh, on one hand, building a distribution platform, but also, on the other hand, wanting to invest significantly into the technology components of what we think um, is a really important part of the DNA of the company is uh, really building out that tech IP, the employee services um, that we really want to drive value throughout the ecosystem. Uh, and so, you know, as we've explored financing options, um, you know, NABIS Capital has become uh, a bigger part of the discussion around how we should finance the overall company, which continues to be, you know, equity, equity driven. Uh, we just announced our Series B uh, a few weeks ago, uh, the initial close of, you know, 23 million. Uh, we're hoping to close uh, over 30 uh, once all, all is said and done. But then on NABIS Capital side, you know, we've been in discussions with various forms of creditors, um, either through you know, venture debt or um, with, with discussions with our local bank, which is also state chartered uh, around um, what might make most sense to uh, you know, pop up the, the balance sheet as we continue to scale out the lending side of things. And um, you know, we're, we're just going through the, I think the, the work, the legwork that needed to make sure the structuring was correct because obviously uh, our equity investors are also sensitive to uh, any movement on the credit side that may, you know, impair their value. So um, I think if we were purely a, a credit investing um, company or purely a distribution company, I think it'd be an easier conversation, but uh, you know, we're, we're just trying to keep our cost of capital in mind along with the governance and risk structures there. Yep, that makes total sense. Thanks, Ting. And Kyle, as you were, you know, mentioning in your last, uh, your last response, actually having that capital is so hypercritical. So, you know, we'd love to throw it over to you and, and your thoughts on you know the fundraising side of things well we um you know again i we we you know more so than than some i, I we kind of really had a principles sort of again it was a lot of the kind of 
family money. And so it really was a principal's investor's mindset. Um, and so to this point, my fund has been total, totally equity. Um, we actually have no leverage yet. Um, we're, we're seeking leverage, um, talking to, you know, sort of mid and smaller banks, a lot of private individuals, uh, some state banks, um, you know, we, you know, and, and David mentioned this and it's obvious, but you know, the, the rate obviously is the key. And the truth is the cost of capital from our perspective is still a bit high. Um, mm -hmm. When we think about, you know, when I think about the longevity of the business, I don't think it'll be a 15 or a 12 cap rate environment ever, but I also don't think I'll be getting zero leverage. I think it's much more likely that, you know, if safe or some version of that comes in, the banks will slowly limp towards lending to guys like us long before they, they get into lending direct to the businesses, right? So even if it's a, it's an eight or a 9% cap rate environment at, at some point down the line, if we're getting money at four or 5%, then we're gonna be making a 400 basis point, 500 basis point spread and things will be great. You know, hopefully we have a company that's, you know, five, 10 times the size of the current company and that's plenty of money for everyone to make. Um, but we are, we are definitely entertaining leverage. You know, again, now that, now that the first funds equity is spent, we kind of made a decision that, you know, we want to get some leverage. We're, we're talking low LTV stuff, right? Like we want to keep our rates kind of that we can get leverage at in this, in the seven ish percent range, um, which is not so easy to do in cannabis. Um, but we have a few guys and, what we may do kind of as an alternative in the short term is just lever on a property by property basis. Um, specifically, some of the smaller banks who, who I'm talking to would will only do it on an asset by asset basis. They won't lever the portfolio. So, you know, as we sort of cobble deals together as we go, right, that, that's kind of a simple way to do it. Um, and again, I, you know, I, I'd love to have a line and, you know, I'm seeking something like that, but for the time being, you know, at the rates we're getting, we're just, we're just doing it asset by asset. But even before that, you know, to this point, we, we kept it all equity. It's, you know, it's friends and family. And then we were on a, we were on a, a crowdfunding platform called CrowdStreet. We raised about $10 million there, all from, you know, small retail investors. We probably have 300 investors in our $50 million fund, mm -hmm. maybe 250, but you get the point. Sure. That's great. Thanks everybody. So, you know, I'd love to, to talk a little bit about, you know, how we can support each other across the cap structure of the companies that we're working with, right? Because, you know, in, in one sense, you could argue that each of us on this panel is competing against each other as, you know, we're, we're driving down our client's cost of capital. But I think as has probably been become pretty apparent on this conversation in a much more sense, sorry, in a much more realistic sense, we're, we're very much complementary to one another because capital is so scarce within the industry and our clients just are desperate for any type of financing solution that can free up that cash for whatever it may be that they really need to continue to drive in growth. And so we'd love to throw it out to, to the field and say, you know, if anyone has thoughts on, you know, what, what each of us on this panel can really do to help support one another. So and anyone uh, want to jump in there? I mean, look, I'm, I'm happy to go first just to say that, look, what, what the most obvious thing is, you know, an exchange of deal flow, right? Like they're what you get, or you get companies that say, Hey, we need money, right? Like, they say we need five million dollars, and and here's what we have. And you know, like whether it makes sense as an equity or an equipment or real estate, you know, inventory or, or, or some combination thereof, right? The first thing we can do simply is just be referring one another deals, which you know I I certainly plan to do so going forward. Sure. But you know, the second thing that 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 I've done of late and I think is really helpful is like, look, again, at least on my on from my perspective, the problem is that. 
I've got a product that, that seems great to the cannabis company, but I can only solve for 60, 50% of the capital they need, you know, within kind of the confines of my charter. Um, not to say that there's not equipment involved or potentially inventory, certainly equity, right? And so what I try to do, what I've done just recently and what I'm trying to do more of is really kind of cobble, cobble deals together, right? So if I was working with a company and I had, I had 70% of the money and the rest might have to be equipment or junior in some fashion, but, but yielding a higher return, you know, I could, I could invite you guys into that and say, hey, this is basically a B2B transaction. You know, we have it, you know, 90% of the way there. And all we really need is, you know, the extra 30% of this deal to get it done. That, that's, where I, that's where I think the industry is, is going to go eventually. Because again, like it's, it's, you know, it's not just equipment. It's not just real estate. It's not just inventory. They, it's, it's all these things that the, you know, the operator is trying to solve for. And so I think the best way is to sort of cobble money together you know, offer a certain rate that's kind of in between what all of us are charging, mm. right? And it looks it looks better from the from the company's perspective. And then, you know, I take 300 basis points less. You guys you guys take that, you know, on the top. Um, that's what I did in my last deal, and I, I think that's a really great way. I mean, maybe that's just because I'm in a very specific charter and I need to be senior and et cetera, et cetera. But I really believe that the operators have kind of large capital needs that one particular group might not be able to solve for. And rather than pass people back and forth, if we can, you know, team up and actually fund deals together, I, I think that's I think that's where the industry is going. Absolutely. I'm gonna I'm gonna piggyback on that and say I have I have been talking about and and Kyle and our firm actually have a mutual banker who is, is near and dear to, to, to our business. And I know his as well. He's been a terrific source of, uh, of deal flow. And I'll, I'll plug him just because I know he'd appreciate it. Uh, Go Paul Garuda. But now you made I, me look bad. Say again? <laughs> now you made me look bad for not you just, No, you just need to reinforce that, that, that it's legitimate. No, he, he, he's one of the hardest working and, and best guys that we've gotten to know. And he's been responsible for, for some of Kyle's deal flow and certainly some of ours and making the connection between our firms. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of history there to speak about. But, you know, we've been talking for a long time and it's not necessarily on the radar this minute, but I'm going to kind of double down on what Kyle said, which is I think what the industry is sorely missing is a firm that can do more, be more than a one trick pony, especially on the credit side. Um, and, you know, I think that that is something that we as a public company at XS, um, while we're not necessarily thinking about this minute, it is in the back of our minds at all times, which is, you know, if you're bringing together three firms to kind of, you know, crazy glue and, and stitch together a capital, you know, solution for somebody that addresses their need, um, you know, scale matters. Uh, the ability to service that need at one place could be a real differentiator that wins deals. Um, and I think over time, as much as you're going to see consolidation of the plant touching operators and you know service firms and what have you, we just saw a law firm get acquired, right? Um, I think you're going to see the same thing happen on the capital funding side. And, you know, some people are going to pair better than others or not. But, you know, we have looked with Rainbow, Kyle's firm, and, you know, coming up with a solution similar to he laid out where they're only going to go so far in, in the capital stack of what's needed for a full build out of a facility, which would include CapEx and equipment. And so for us to be able to come together, 
go to the customer and say, hey, you know, we've just taken out the question mark of can you find this other piece? We're going to solve it together. You know, but that's two different firms running two different credit processes surrounding two different timing. So there's challenges. It's not, it's not just a natural layup. If you can do all that under one house where everybody is focused on the same goal, um, that becomes a really interesting solution. So, you know, over time, we'll see how things play out. But, um, you know, we are, as much as we're also making friends, trying to share referrals and, and put people on a pedestal to get win business and this and that, we're also trying to build relationships because I think there's going to be M&A surrounding the financiers in this space as well. And this industry is lacking where a firm like where you used to work, Jordan, which would be something like a GE Capital um, that can handle, you know, multiple tranches of the capital structure. So um, I think over time you're going to see that, but it's hard to see today. Um, but one thing that I'll touch on in addition to that is, you know, we talked about cost of capital and a lot of the challenges that, that all of us have, and there was no clear answer of, oh, we're just going here for 4% money. That, that, that's not an answer you heard from anybody. But when you look at, you know, the large scale debt financing that again, using IIPR is a good example, just accomplished, you know, they were able to achieve, you know, a mid single rate number, but they had scale. They already had the portfolio. They have the asset base. So as we all get bigger, whether individually or together, that scale is going to help achieve and performance, of course, is going to help achieve a lower cost of capital, hopefully faster than the industry cost of capital drop. Yeah. So that is something that I think we're, we're going to be thinking a lot about here moving forward. Absolutely. Yep. Great. Ting, anything to add on that front? Sure. I, you know, I think Navis has a unique position of essentially being uh, a future customer uh, of David and Kyle's as we continue to, to scale our distribution business, uh, but also having, you know, the, the networking of uh, point a, a large portfolio of customers that um, on one hand you know continues to grow and on the other hand you know continues to, to grow bigger as a customer list of uh, you know larger and smaller brands uh, that we continue to aggregate onto our platform uh, and so you know I think and they you know whether it's an introduction from our brand portfolio or an introduction of one of uh, from David and Kyle one of their clients um, you know I think NAB is presents just even from the distribution standpoint uh, you know, a unique opportunity to help make their investment uh, a success, you know, in terms of not just getting the building up and running, not just getting the uh, equipment in place, but also getting the product to the market uh, into the hands of consumers, you know, who, who are going to be buying them at the, at the end of the day. Uh, and, you know, I think for us, you know, as we continue to grow the volume that, that just channels through our platform, um, I think there's a way to, to make, you know, our ability to monetize that uh, through, through the factoring side of things, um, just you know, more compelling and, and scale yeah, even faster, I think, through through the benefit of, you know, these kinds of introductions and, and just customer relationships. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Great. And so now let's, uh, let's ask everybody to take out their crystal bars and but crystal balls and uh, think about what the future looks like for each of your individual asset classes, right? I mean, how does everybody think that, you know, their specific sector of specialty finances is really going to develop over the near to medium term, right? What, what is the competitive landscape going to look like over the call it, you know, next two to three years? And, you know, we obviously saw some uh, major legislation proposed by, by Schumer yesterday. And, you know, regardless of whether or not that specific legislation has any real chance of passing, I think it is a strong indication, at least of the direction that legislators are pushing 
for the industry to move. So, you know, with that, would love to get everybody's insights on, you know, how legislation could impact their sector and, and how they view the competitive landscape developing. So um, again, throw it out to anyone who wants to jump in there first. I'll kick it off. Great. Um, you know, we're, we're in a unique position at XS. Um, you know, there are very few, if any, companies doing what we do at scale. Um, there's some opportunistic groups, um, you know, equipment, understanding values of equipment, types of equipment, you know, that is somewhat nuanced, um, you know, and we've built out now, I think, 200 or so different preferred vendor relationships with different original equipment manufacturers, distributors, you know, et cetera. And so, you know, we have done, I think, a pretty good job of getting to know that side of the business. And, you know, there's some nuances involved surrounding tax structuring and, and things that we do to structure leases on a state-by-state -state basis to, to help companies qualify for sales tax exemptions and, and different things. And so there's, there's some nuance to it, not that there isn't with any business, but in ours, um, I don't think people naturally gravitate towards CapEx and equipment finance. And so, you know, what we're excited about is we don't see any competition. Um, we've seen some small ticket, you know, either opportunistic capital or here and there try and finance, you know, securing uh, smaller investments with, with some equipment, what have you. But at scale, we haven't. And that was one of the reasons we moved in this direction is, is my background was real estate development and investment. Um, but real estate, we thought was a little bit more competitive. Uh, still, even today, you know, as, as has been pointed out, there's not enough capital to address the need. So it's not that competitive. But um, we don't really compete with anybody directly for our product. Um, and we think that that's, you know, a huge advantage for us as a first mover to, to really move as quickly as we can to, to build that mode and, and stay in that position. Yep. Straight. Um, I can jump in. Um, yeah, you know, like there, there, there's sort of two sides to it, right? Like, First off, just just I guess to more broadly, you know where where we think legislation is going. Um, my personal view is that the you know the the latest legislation doesn't really do a whole hell of a lot. Um, I, I personally think it's I you know I, I I think it's a positive piece of paper, but I think it's more for Schumer's own rat reasons than it is for you know moving cannabis forward. Um, you know, midterm elections come up next year. I just don't see a lot changing before then. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, my other, you know, just more broadly, I, I don't necessarily think cannabis will be, you know, legalized or anything near that, you know, during the Biden term. And so, you know, when when it happens, I think it's it's going to eventually happen for sure. But, you know, the reason this, the stocks are kind of down today is because, like, people were expecting the legislation to be, you know, to be like a great, a great step forward. And it's just like, you know, a tiny tiptoe at that. Um, and that's what's been happening in the industry a lot, right? Like mm -hmm. Georgia went blue and the stocks went crazy. And then a month later, everything kind of fallen off and has fallen off ever since. Mm -hmm. And it's because people got a little overexcited a little early. And the truth is that, you know, the industry is kind of, is kind of moving slowly. Um, we certainly have competitors, right? Like I think I think the bottom line is that there are way more needs for capital than there are capital available. But IIPR was mentioned, you know, there there's certainly the gorilla in the room. 
Um, you know, the way we kind of compete with guys like that, again, is we, we try to keep our costs a bit lower. Um, and where I, where I see my personal business going, <clears throat> and I guess like most of the, you know, cannabis real estate industry going at large is, look, I mentioned this before, but I'll just restate that I think guys like us are going to be the first who are able to get bank financing or close there too, right? If they, if, if cannabis gets federally legalized tomorrow, JP Morgan's not going to be lending direct to, you know, uh, Cureleaf. I, I, I don't think so. Not, not right away for sure. Right. I think it's going to take time. Banks will limp in. And so again, even if it goes from in my world, you know, a 13 cap rate environment to an, to an 11 to a nine really quickly, if that means I'm getting debt from seven and a half down to six and a half down to five and a half, there's plenty of business to be done. And David's right. You know, a really big key to what we're doing is, is, is trying to scale because we want to be larger. We want to be able to get our rates down. We want to be able to do more business, even if it's at a slightly lower yield. Um, and that's a lot of what we're focused on. And that's why, you know, more of my pipeline and more of what I'm doing today is, is on the, is on the lending side versus the uh, sale lease back side, because the sale lease back side is more competitive. The operators themselves prefer to own the properties. And so, you know, I think there's a nice niche to, to put out a lot of money, you know, over the next several years, kind of in, in the cannabis lending sphere, securitized lending sphere. And from there, again, it's it's a game of, you know, just it's just a spread game, right? If I can get my cost of capital down at or near the same rate that the cost, you know, that the operator's cost of capital goes down, then we're still in business. Um, and that, that broadly, that's what I think is going to happen. Yep, yep. I think I would echo what, what David and Kyle said around just the need in the industry for capital. Um, you know, there's certainly larger factoring uh, focus, the businesses in space. And, you know, for, from our standpoint, you know, we're, we're, we're obviously well aware, but just, I think there's an opportunity for everyone to grow as the market continues to grow, just given that the market opportunity is so large uh, and underserved. Uh, from a cost of capital standpoint, we, we certainly think that over time, uh, rates will go down that because we're aggregating so much more volume than, than our customers that will, will benefit from that scale. Uh, but to Kyle's point, the timing is, is certainly un, un, you know, unknown and, um, and unlikely to, to have any near-term movement in a, in a way that you know, is, is drastic. Um, so you know, I think as we look at Navis, um, at the end of the day, you know, I think as I mentioned before on this call, we view the product as something that uh, is really more value additive to to our customers at the end of the day, and uh, while the the factoring rates are something that we you know are, are doing a lot of homework around to make sure that we're not losing money, um, we think it's it's less of the core you know core value or revenue generative um, product that we're offering, and it's more so just a value added service. So uh, we want to make sure that and they that it, it, everyone's growing. Um, so I, I think uh, our view is that. You know, we're, we're going to be offering rates that are probably competitive, uh, if not less than what everyone else who's focusing on it is doing. So um, there's definitely a, a niche of being a one-stop shop, and we think that that's going to be a great value driver for for our you know capital business. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and on, on the regulatory front, I would certainly echo what Kyle was saying about you know thinking it, it be being pretty unrealistic that anything happens uh, under uh, under President Biden's administration. And you know, in fact, I, I recently read President Obama's book and, you know, it was really interesting and, and, and in a lot of ways, unfortunate insights into, you know, how the sausage is actually made at, at the federal level. And, you know, you kind of recognize that as a new presidential administration comes in, they tend to have a little bit of a, you know, call 100 day grace period where things can actually get done. And I think that was why 
after the blue wave in January, people were so excited about cannabis and thought that there's going to be this major change. But, you know, now that that time frame has really passed us, now you get back to traditional partisan gridlock where, despite the fact that the vast, vast majority of Americans all are in favor of, you know, cannabis legalization, now you see our, our politicians are more uh, more focused on, you know, making sure that their party wins more seats at the next election and, and not actually getting legislation passed. And I think, you know, if you haven't seen anything passed by the midterm or, you know, six months even before the midterms of next year, then, you know, nothing's going to happen during the Biden administration, unfortunately. That's at the federal level. Now, let's not forget all the incredible progress that's being made at the state level, right? And so, you know, I don't, I don't want to sound all doom and gloom from a regulatory perspective, right? I mean, already this year, we've seen New York, New Mexico, Virginia, Connecticut legalized. So there's still so much embedded growth that even if federal change doesn't happen as quickly as it should, or we'd all hope, there, there's still huge progress that is being made. Um, and then, you know, as we think about venture capital financing going forward, certainly there's going to continue to be more and more com competition on that front, you know, more funds coming into space. I, I think in, in a lot of ways, COVID actually prevented some, some new entrants from getting into the space because no one was launching new funds during that time period. Again, you know, there certainly is going to be more competition, although, as I touched on earlier, given the fact that a lot of institutional funds have these vice clause restrictions that, you know, there's still always going to be a large number of private equity and venture capital folks from outside the industry who are never able to get in. Now, you know, we would certainly argue that the whole classification of cannabis as a vice is, is nonsense, that there's clearly more medicinal purposes for it than there are, you know, drug quote unquote related aspects. And that by classifying it as a vice, you're continuing to perpetuate all the historical injustices that have been, you know, committed as part of the war on drugs. But anyway, that's, that's a conversation for another time. Um, so anyway, just to wrap things up, really appreciate everyone for taking the time to be on this panel today. I would love to just quickly go around the horn and, and uh, you know, if, if you all have uh, email addresses or, or ways that potential customers or investors could reach out to you, you know, here, here's a chance to go ahead and plug those. Yeah, uh, David Kivitz at XS Financial. It's uh, D-K-I-V-I-T-Z at XSFinancial.com or Anybody can try me on cell 202-309-1166. And I would just add to it, I think everybody would probably agree that legalization is a very double-edged sword for all of our businesses. Um, and so I think there's this idea that, you know, the public wants it. Clearly, that's, that's what the numbers indicate. But it comes with pros and cons for all of us. And the same can be said for any of the companies we're financing. So it's going to be interesting to see not so much will it legalize, it's coming, right? At some point in time, as, as everybody's alluded to, it's really the how. How does that roll out? That's really going to be what matters most for all of us. Great. I'll go. Um, yeah, look, again, I, I agree with what a lot of David said. It's definitely a double-edged sword. Um, you know, frankly, just stats. I know, I know for sure that status quo is a good situation. So I, I, you know, the fact that the legislation wasn't as enthusiastic as everyone hoped from my perspective is, is just fine. Um, and I, I agreed, like it's an, it's, it's an inevitability. So when, when it happens, you know, it, it's sort of unpredictable, but at least from my perspective, again, the bigger the company can be before that time, I think the better. Um, so status quo is okay for me, but you know, my name's Kyle Schenfeld. I'm the president of Rainbow Realty Group. My email is Kyle, uh, K-Y-L-E, at rainbowrg.com. Um, 
My number is 516-996-9261. I almost always pick up. I'm up very early. Um, so call me anytime as well. And again, th thanks for everyone's time. Thanks, Jordan, for hosting. Uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks, uh, Kyle. I think uh, to your point, the, uh, the, the point around making sure that we achieve the scale that, that as much scale as we can, you know, I think is really, um, is really echoed. And as we view, you know, our strategic future of uh, really racing to, to be too big to fail effectively, you know, in these industries, um, we, we want to be a critical component of infrastructure. Uh, and on the capital side, you know, I think um, the aggregation is going to be key to, to be able to continue outpacing that, that decline in rates for, for customers. Um, you know, as it relates to for customers to reach out, um, I think the best email would be capital C A P I T A L at Navis N A B I S dot com. Uh, you know, we're building out a full team and, and you know really excited for for the growth of the standalone product. Um, but you know, happy to to reach any um, reach out to any interested parties and, and onboard onto the onto the platform or let them know you know future product developments. Fantastic. Well, thanks again, everyone. This was such a fun panel. Really appreciate your all's time and uh, look forward to finding great, great companies to support the capital structure with y'all. So thanks again and, and have a great afternoon, everybody. Thank you. Thanks again, guys. Thanks all.